this week on the Back Table Podcast. I've done a lot of multidisciplinary work in everything, but this is as multidisciplinary as it gets, in my opinion. Sounds like it. Um, you know, BPA is a completely new ballgame. And, you know, the patients are so complex that it really requires close to 10 people to make the appropriate decisions for these patients. Every patient is a question mark. Every patient was like, what should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? So we're continuously learning with every single patient, every single angiogram, and we're getting better and better. But uh, hopefully in the future, uh, you know, we'll be offering this to more and more patients and, and we'll get better at it for the sake of our patients. But, you know, it all comes down to the team and we have a great team that I'm really happy with. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products, developed by physicians for physicians, and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. Today, we're going to be talking about the endovascular treatment of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Rehap Boutros and Dr. Benham Tarani at Innova. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. Thank you so much for having us, Mike. Thank you guys for coming on and doing this, uh, you know, sharing your time and expertise with us. You guys have a, you know, an interesting, uh, you know, the way you guys are set up to do this. You know, Ray High is an interventional radiologist and Benham is an interventional cardiologist. So I'm interested to hear from both of you what your practices look like, uh, starting with you, Benham. Sure. Thank you again very much, Mike, for having us. It's obviously a privilege to be here with you and with Reha. My practice is uh, typically uh, in the hospital. I take care of patients here at Anova Fairfax as my primary um, practice. Um, I serve as director of the cath lab, so I you know, take care of patients with complex cardiovascular disease, patients that come in with um, acute myocardial infarction, stable ischemic heart disease, and I also am privileged to be working with Reha in, in the uh, pulmonary embolism response team. Ray, how about you? Yeah, Mike, um, I work at Fairfax uh, Radiology. It's a big uh, private practice group uh, that has about 80-something radiologists. And wow. uh, our division uh, is quite large as well. We do 100% IR. Uh, we have uh, nine IRs and two neuro IRs. And uh, we cover three hospitals. And the main hospital is, is the Innova Fairfax Hospital. So I've been here for about five years um, you know, after fellowship uh, and uh, we do everything at very yeah. high volume and complexity essentially at the hospital. And uh, so we've kind of learned uh, within each other to divide and conquer uh, fields. Mm -hmm. so some of us do aortas and, and peripheral work, some of us do more onc. And um, our number one strength, I think in the hospital, which I think the hospital is also appreciating this is, is collaboration. We thrive on collaboration. We invite uh, other divisions to help us. We help them. And, and this has led to um, a success for, uh, for patients and the system and for us. We've been working with Ben and both on the acute side and the chronic side uh, for the past two and a half years. And uh, we've developed a great um, team approach and, and really happy to have him as a, as a team member and, and as a friend. That's really cool that you guys get to do that uh, and that you have the support to work together as a group. Uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me you're doing that, uh, Rayhawk, because, you know, you're known for doing a lot of pretty high-end vascular stuff. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to hearing how you guys put this together as a team. So 
you know, let's talk first a little bit about uh, CTEPH, which is chronic thrombopulmonary hypertension. Uh, and I'm hoping you guys could give us a little bit of background on it. I mean, is this pretty common after QPE? So uh, if you look at the, um, about if different registries uh, quote different numbers, but the average is about three to 5% of patients who get PE end up developing CTEF. And um, I think it's quite unrecognized and uh, there's a lot of patients that need treatment out there. However, the flip is not quite accurate. Sometimes patients come with CTEF and about 20 to 30% of them do not have any history of uh, known uh, symptomatic PE. So it, it is out there. It is relatively common and uh, there's not a lot of centers in the States that, that treat this comprehensively. It's uh, mostly medical therapy uh, if you look at it and only a few centers uh, give the comprehensive treatment options to the patients. And uh, we're happy to be one of those centers in the country. The, the biggest player in the field is, is UCSC and they've been doing this for uh, quite some time yeah. and very successfully. But yeah, it, it, it is a very, very complex uh, disease, uh, you know, it requires really uh, well knowledge of the pathophysiology, um, you know, both from a cardiac aspect, pulmonary aspect, um, you know, we do a monthly meeting and if you look at our meeting, we have a, you know, pharmacists, we have pulmonary hypertension specialists, we have CT surgery, cardiology, cardiac imager, radiologists. It's just all of the fields uh, are in our meetings and every month uh, we get together and decide and discuss the patients and decide what treatment option would be best. So yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's been about two years that we uh, developed this program and uh, we're happy uh, that it's uh, becoming a successful program. I'm glad you said CTEF. CTEF, yes. CTEF. Yeah, I'm glad that's way better than saying CTEPH. I was already getting tired <laughs> of that. Ben, is, is, is that basically what, you know, a comprehensive pulmonary, chronic pulmonary hypertension center entails is just, you know, all the different multiple disciplinary team members being involved or does it require certain therapies? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a complex disease process. Like Larry has said about, you know, up to 5% of patients after an acute PE will get it. And it's complex. It's, you know, within pulmonary hypertension, there's multiple subsets. Uh, and this is one of them. Uh, you know, it's you know, typically what they call class four. And these are patients that, you know, despite the fact that they've seen a pulmonologist, they've been in the hospital, they'll have a medical doctor involved in their care. You'll see that, you know, despite all these therapies that they'll show signs of, um, that they have some signs of, uh, at least in not only pulmonary hypertension, but right-sided heart failure. Typically they'll have a mean pulmonary pressure over 25. They'll have at least one perfusion defect on a nuclear scan. And so because of all of that, then they show, start to show signs of really stress on not only on their heart, but on their, on their end organs. And so like Rhea described, that's where the whole concept of the multidisciplinary team comes in. And when you look at best practices and centers around the country and for that matter around the world that take care of these patients. You have experts like Rehad Interventional Radiology, experts in pulmonary hypertension. Like we have at our center, Dr. Sh uh, Oksana Shloban and her team um, are obviously among the forefront experts at this, cardiac surgeons. You have um, diagnostic radiologists, you have heart failure cardiologists, because really it takes a whole team to recognize the disease, optimize the patient, and really get them to the next step. And, and that's where I think we'll talk a little bit about today, because in these patients, if they're left untreated, unfortunately, their three to five year survival rate is very poor. And their quality of life, Mike, also, um, these patients, they can't go up a flight of stairs. They can't, you know, do any shopping. They're kind of stuck at home because, uh, they're, they're very limited, uh, physical, uh, tolerance. So it's really important to try to, you know, do the best for these patients and improve their quality of life. The natural history of this is, you know, we follow up almost all of our submassive mass VPE patients and uh, they get uh, a follow-up echo in three months. If that shows increased pressures, 
pull mirror pressures. Then we get either a dual energy CT, which we are commonly using and slowly replacing the planar nuke scan. And that shows perfusion defects. Then you're kind of approaching the diagnosis of, of CTEF. But again, a lot of the patients that get referred to us are from around the country or from around the region. And a subset, a significant subset of these patients have no known history of previous PE. So it's a very diverse population. Uh, some patients are young, some patients are old. Uh, you know, when you come down to it, is it really just the clot burden that causes this? No, it's very multifactorial. It, it, you know, most of the pathophysiology is probably abnormal fibrinolysis. You know, okay. So it's an internal inability to break down those clots uh, that leads to this. But yeah, glad you said Oksana Benham, and, and she's our leader in this. She's the advanced pulmonary hypertension specialist. And um, we do a lot of lung transplants and we see a lot of pulmonary hypertension patients in our hospital. And uh, she was seeing all these pulmonary hypertension patients and referring them out to either Temple or UCSD. And, um, you know, she is a very good leader and she's a visionary person. And she came to us um, and said, you know, we'd like to start developing this uh, comprehensive program, CTEF program. And uh, could we ask for your help? And uh, we immediately jumped on it. And um, this is not something you could do by yourself. It's a very tedious work. It requires a lot of knowledge from different specialties. So we invited Benham to be with us. And ever since we've been doing every single case together from pulmonary angiograms to uh, BPA cases. We had to go to Japan to get uh, the training, and that was a very. Oh, I'm going to ask you all about that. <laughs> One question I had first: You said you know pulmonary angiograms. Are you doing diagnostic angiograms in addition to uh, you know the angiograms you're doing for intervention? Yes, initially when the patients come in with the uh, with uh, suspicion of CTEF, um, they have their dual angiography CT, they have their echo, so we're suspected CTEF. They come to us, and we do a right heart catheterization. We measure the pressures across the heart. We do uh, sometimes a left heart catheterization if the wedge pressure is high. And then we do the pulmonary angiogram because the um, dual energy CT gives you more information about the proximal vessels and the perfusion defects, but we want to see more detailed anatomy. So uh, we do a selective good pulmonary angiograms with several obliquities and really look at the disease at a segmental and sub-segmental level. And once we have all the pressure data, the um, you know, angiogram data, we take that to our monthly conference and then discuss every patient. Okay. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you about how you guys learned this, but but one more question about this is, you know, basically what is the threshold for these patients? I mean, they're mostly being treated medically, as you said. Basically, what is going to bump a patient up from medical treatment to possible candidacy for, you know, angioplasty or other endovascular treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a lot of places, these patients will get treated medically and they'll develop right-sided heart failure or symptoms of right-sided heart failure, and then they'll just languish on for several years before they you know, reach the point of not being salvageable, either, either with medical or endovascular or surgical therapies. So really, like Riha said, the cornerstone, really, the, you know, really the, the, the foundation for all of this is having the, you know, is having the pulmonary hypertension service. They're the, they're the team that really understands this disease process Again, you know, we get involved procedurally. We get involved on the echo side. Um, there are things that we help to, you know, to um, serve as adjunctive services. But the pulmonary hypertension team are the ones that recognize it and recognize it early. And like Riha said, you know, that team is and led by Dr. Sloven has really revolutionized how we take care of them. So they will see them. They have they have a very strict protocol in which they'll get uh, dual energy CTs. They'll get an echocardiogram, and then very quickly again they'll get referred. And so. Really, the criteria for being referred for an evaluation is quite simple. It's if you have elevated mean pulmonary pressures or elevated pulmonary vascular resistance and symptoms, usually class three or class four symptoms, 
And there's even a subset of patients called CTED in which they have chronic thromboembolic disease without manifestations of actual pulmonary hypertension. And if they're symptomatic, or at least you do an exercise test on them in the, uh, in the IR and the cath labs and you demonstrate it, that will then qualify them to be evaluated for advanced therapy. So, okay. Mike, there's three treatment options for this. One is Rio Siwat, which is the medication that was approved in 2013, the medical therapy that was shown to improve the six minute walk tests and their physical performance. The other treatment is pulmonary angioplasty, which is what we do, and pulmonary thrombendirectomy, and that's a surgical uh, procedure. Right. So there's a lot of different factors we take into account uh, where we decide what treatment option would be best for the patients. And sometimes we do a combination. If the patient is relatively young and the disease is more central and the patient does not have any comorbidities, then the patient goes for a PTE and, and that's a surgical thromboendirectomy. That's yeah. the gold standard treatment. And we've done about eight or nine cases so far. And Dr. Dan Tang is our CT surgeon who does them and we've had good results. If the patient is a little older and the disease is more distal then, and, and there's treatable disease on the angiogram, then we offer BPA. But if the patient's pressure is too high, then we start the patient on medical therapy, try to bring the pressures down a little bit so that our complication rate will be less. Okay. So you guys decided you wanted to learn this and you went about doing it. So how did you guys choose Japan? How, you know, I mean, if you said UCSD is doing, you know, is a, is a very well-established center. Why Japan? How did you reach out to these guys? How did you guys make this happen? So yeah, great question. Dr. Matsubara, um, there, there's a couple of places that have really high volume in the, in the country, in the world. Uh, one is, uh, Dr. Matsubara in Okayama. And we had heard that he was training people from Europe and the States. And he was a really nice, pleasant, approachable guy. And there's Dr. Lang in Austria, Indiana, that also has high volume. And um, UCSC has high volume. So we re reached out to all of these centers and uh, we were trying to get the most amount of exposure with the two weeks that we were able to secure. Yeah. And it seemed like uh, Dr. Matsubara would have the highest volume. And he was able to kind of collect all of the cases within the two weeks we were visiting. And so we went there as a team of four, Opsana, myself, Ben, and uh, Mitch uh, Sotka, uh, our uh, cardiac transplant cardiologist. And we spent two weeks there and it was absolutely amazing. We, we had a great experience. We learned really well. They were so hospitable. I mean, I have huge, huge respect for, for him and his team. And we, we came back um, really knowledgeable of the situation and, and they even led us to some cases, honestly. That's cool. <laughs> you know I mean? Did it, uh, was the department kind of similar to the way ours are sent up here? It's, it's, it's interesting. This is a small town, kind of a couple of hours south of Tokyo, and it's, it's a really? relatively big hospital. And um, they had two cardiac angio suites, and they did everything there. But more than half of their work was CTEF, and they're getting referrals no from way. all around the world. Like there was a patient from Ukraine, there was a patient from Greece. And throughout the, throughout Asia, they were getting patients and back to back, they were doing pulmonary angiograms or bone pulmonary angioplasty. And, uh, the amount they do with the limited resources they have, uh, although this is a first world country, all they had, Mike, was one guy cat, one wire, two balloons. No way. And, and you know, we're so spoiled in the States. Sometimes you don't realize, <laughs> I mean, the amount of inventory we use with Benham when we're doing these cases, like. And wires, five guy cats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just totally. It, it's completely different. And these guys are, you know, they, they're, they're doing miracle with like, you know, just a wire and then shaping it and then using it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, 
they let us scrub into a few cases and we had a great time. You know, we socialized, they, they taught us everything. They showed us That's their cool. presentations and, uh, yeah. You got to enjoy the area. Was the food good? The food was great. We had so much seafood and in between the weekend, we went to Tokyo, of course, and we had more oh. food there, <laughs> but the people are so nice. I, I went yeah. to a Seven Eleven one day and I was running and I, I needed some water. And, uh, I, I didn't have money. So I'm like, I'm sorry. I mean, I was trying to use my Apple pay. It didn't work. <laughs> so I left, I started running and all of a sudden this lady, and she's like probably in her mid fifties, she was running behind me. Like she caught no up way. to me and she gave me the water. I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. It's great. They, they were yeah. the nice people. Yeah. I can't overemphasize what Riha just said. You know, obviously it was an amazing experience, but they are very super specialized in what they do. Yeah. It sounds you know, when like you look it. at centers. Yeah. When you look at centers around the U S that do cardiac work, you know, they do somewhere between 300 and a thousand, you know, percutaneous coronary interventions and other transcatheter therapies. This site was primarily a BPA center. I mean, this is what they do. They, they get referrals from not only across their country, but across the world. And so these folks are doing you know, three or 400 BPAs a year. Wow. When you look at sites around the country, around, around the United States that are doing this, I mean, it's only a fraction of what they do and they are seeing them across the spectrum. And so Obviously, like Riha said, they have the highest level of expertise and they're able to do it, like Riha said, with the, with the amount of resources that they have and their results are really excellent. I mean, they've been doing this for more than 10 years in terms of how they really just um, yeah. specialize this as a niche. This, this therapy, just to let you know, it was around about 33 years ago, was first performed. But in the last nine to 10 years, it's really started to become more specialized. Yeah. That's because of these, it's because of Dr. Matsubara and his so when this procedure first came out, the first reports for, uh, from Dr. Feinstein, I believe in Boston, and, um, he put out his, his case series and the complication rate was really high. So after that, it, it died down for a while until the Japanese slowly picked it up and they, uh, modified the technique they were doing these procedures with. It, it, the, the, um, initially Dr. Feinstein, I believe was being a little more aggressive with the balloon sizes, but you got to realize, you know, and Mike, you know, this too, the veins are much more forgiving than the arteries. Right. These pulmonary arteries are being exposed to uh, arterial, similar to arterial pressures, like systolics in the 80s and 90s. And they're occluded. They have all these fibrosis. They, they're, they're really, really diseased vessels and they're very thin walled. So when you put a six millimeter balloon in a really diseased vessel that is exposed to high pressures, that is, that has a very thin wall, not like the arteries, you're going to have some ruptures. You're going to have some hemorrhage. So, um, the complication rate, rate was a little bit high. So then there was a, there was a period about, you know, 15 years ago where the technique was refined. They started using smaller balloons, about two millimeters, and they started doing these in different sessions. So every patient gets about five, six procedures, as opposed to trying to do everything at the same time. Mm -hmm. So two millimeters, and then you let the vessel remodel, uh, give the patient some time, treat the patient medically. Once the pressure is a little lower. You go a little more aggressive. You treat all of the vessels with two millimeters, then you treat all of the vessels with four millimeters, then you slowly escalate depending on the pressure. And once the, uh, technique was modified, the complication rates really decreased and it became a more, uh, widespread used uh, procedure. So is that how you guys are doing them? That's right. Um, we, we, uh, every patient gets about five, six, uh, procedures plus the pulmonary angiogram uh, during the diagnostic workup. So we come really, really close with these, uh, families. We see yeah, them sure. every two weeks, uh, for five, six procedures. It's really tedious work, but it is very, very gratifying. You know? Okay. Every procedure, the patients get 
small amounts of incremental benefit, incremental benefit. And, and at the end of those two months, you know, I get a card from the patient saying I was able to golf again after 10 yeah. years. Thank you so much. And yeah, it, it's, it's, it makes it all worthwhile. So how are you measuring the outcomes of these patients clinically? I mean, is it, is it based on how they're feeling? Is this, you know, exercise tests? Is this based on angiograms or pressure measurements? Yeah, it's pretty comprehensive. It's, it's all encompassing. So it obviously comes down to the patient's symptoms. You know, what are their classification? They usually their class three in which they get, you know, symptomatic with minimal levels of physical activity. We've seen some of their class four at rest are symptomatic. So we look at their symptoms. We look at their echo. So we'll, we'll see how the right side of the heart's functioning. Uh, and there's really good data, MRI uh, in the cardiac space, echocardiogram, uh, nuclear scans to show that the, that the heart started to show some good signs of remodeling and shrinking on the right side and improving. Uh, we'll also look at their uh, dual energy CT scans as Reha and one of his colleagues, Dr. Atkins, who are experts in looking at that, will show that, you know, what the, what the perfusion or the blood flow looks like. I always analogize that to like a stress test, what we do in the heart. It's like a heat map where it shows you where the blood flow looks like. And then really, um, you know, I think at the end, it comes down to doing a repeat right heart catheterization to look at their hemodynamics. I mean, I've been doing hemodynamics for 10 years. I'll tell you, I didn't really appreciate what hemodynamics were until the last two years <laughs> when I started doing them with Reha and with Dr. Sloven's team, because really hemodynamics, especially for the right side of the heart, is different than anything else you, we, we ever see. It's, it's, it's very specialized. There are a lot of parameters that we look at. And it really, for me, especially as a cardiologist, it's given me another higher level of appreciation. And I literally had to go back to school again with these guys when I started doing this in terms of understanding the hemodynamics of the right side of the heart and, and how it pertains to this particular disease state. For, for me, all these objective parameters are important to get, of course, um, to really objectively assess your, your treatment success. But for me, the most important thing is that, you know, phone call or the card you get from the patient that they're, you know, they weren't able to walk around and now they're golfing. You know, we, we totally. had a patient like that a couple of months ago and it kind of not made my day. It made my whole month. And I, yeah. I love the guy he calls, I'll say every now and then, but cause this is really tedious work, Mike. Every procedure we do, you oh, have yeah. to realize we're treating one or two, three vessels and every case is two, three hours. And you do that five and six times again and again. Yeah. Uh, the patients are under local anesthesia. You can't give them sedation because their pressures are high and they have to hold their breath. They hold their breath maybe 50 times during the procedure. You get the wow. angels. You try to get into these disease occluded vessels when the heart is moving, when there's motion, when the lungs are moving with all of four wires, trying to be really gentle. It is really tedious work, which, you know, as an IR background of what I do, I'm not really used to, but <laughs> you know, I'm kind of the surgeon, you know, you know. No, it's, it's not true, but you know, we, we aren't used to seeing, you know, like, like Benham is like a beating heart that it's moving as you're trying to access a vessel. It's, it's something that I would imagine is, is tough to get used to. Yeah, it's different. It's very tedious. It's very, it's very tedious, very meticulous. And you really get, and for me especially, um, who was uh, new to this space, I had to get a really uh, a different level of appreciation for pulmonary anatomy variations and how the, how the arteries are. So it's a very rewarding space to be in. And when you see the patients do so well, it's really gratifying. We've done about maybe 40-something sessions of BPA now. Wow. Most of them go really well and smooth, but when things go down, they go down. Like in this space, it's, yeah. it, there's no forgiveness. You have to be really prepared for the worst. Unfortunately, we had a patient who had hemoptysis when we we're trying to do BPA and um, it, it was really difficult to control. If you have a wire cross and if you know where, where your injury was, then you could potentially either gel foam or coil or do something about it. 
But once the patient starts coughing, all of those, your wires uh, just kick out and, and you have no idea. You yeah. can't even do an angiogram. So yeah, sometimes you get bad outcomes. Well, that was going to be one of my next questions was getting used to the pulmonary arterial circulation. I know for me, my only experience with pulmonary arteries is for QPE. And, you know, that's, that's just something that I'm not used to. You know, when you guys are looking at these, at the initial angiogram and, and planning your treatment, are you just looking for the, the specific vessels with stenoses or pulmonary arteries, like the peripheral arteries, get these chronic total occlusions? You know, it, it's a different vascular bed. How does it compare? Yeah, there's definitely a learning curve. So um, yeah, definitely having the upfront imaging, you know, the dual energy CT makes it very helpful. So you're able to okay. focus your eyes in terms of where you think that there, that there's going to be areas of uh, diminished blood flow, narrowings, total occlusions. And there's always some discrepancy between the two, but the, but the CT energy, the dual energy CT is extremely helpful and, and it's very high yield. So, you know, usually what they, what they have said was that, you know, initially at least in the, in, in the Japanese literature, when they did it, they said it, that there was about a learning curve of about 20 to 30 cases. Uh, but over time, your radiation went down, your total procedural time went down, your contrast volume went down. And so over time, you get better. For me as a cardiologist, it's obviously extremely helpful to have Reha's expertise and given what he's been doing in the pulmonary vascular space. So we're able to kind of apply the different areas that we bring together. But the learning curve is, is there. Um, and, you know, last week there was the CTEF proceedings over at Temple. Um, and when you hear what they've, what they've been doing and at sites at UCSD and others around the world, they will all tell you that there's a learning curve up front uh, in the care of these patients. Yeah, initially there was a lot of guesswork we were doing. But over time, we were able to really identify which segments are which. And there's 10 segmental vessels on each side. And uh, especially in the lower lobe, they are the right middle lobe and the lower lobe vessels all overlap. The most important thing is to get two obliques. So every patient, we get an AP and we get a steep oblique image. So we can see where the fissures are and, and determine is it going anterior, posterior, and then put them side to side. And um, it's important to know what what segment is, is occluded, what segment has webs, what segment you're going to treat because you're going to go to that segment again and again. So um, getting an oblique image definitely helps. It's really important to, to have that. And disease types, the Japanese have also come up with uh, classifying this. The classification is either a ring lesion, which is a tight ring narrowing, a focal narrowing, or webs within the vessel. You can see it's a little more, the, the contrast is a little less in that region and you see kind of a and narrowing in the vessel, or you get subtotal occlusions where the discrepancy in the vessel is huge. And then you get a thin vessel extending from a larger pulmonary segmental vessel, or you get total occlusions with a nubbin that you can identify most of the time. Sometimes you don't even see the nubbin. You just get this big perfusion defect area, and there's really no vessels extending to that area. Uh, so that's just general classification. The difference from the pulmonary side is. When you treat a, a, an artery that's narrow and with a balloon, you almost, you almost always know that that vessel is going to come back. The advantage you have with the pulmonary side is what we've seen. You dilate these vessels, they remodel and get better as opposed to shutting down again. You know, so you use these uh, subsequent angiograms and with each angiogram, you get more flow and the vessel looks even better after like one or two angioplasties. You bring the patient back a year later, the vessel is still open. So that, that's the main difference, I think, from the artery side is that they respond really well to angioplasty. That's an excellent point because when you look at the old literature, as you remember from PTCA back in the late 90s, they were always in the hospital because the first six hours they would get recoiled, the vessel would close. And that's why we had developed bare metal and drug-eluting stents because at six months, there's a 50% restenosis rate. It's a different physiology in the lungs. These arteries are chronic, 
hard fibrotic lesions, and the vessels respond favorably to the balloons. And especially when you start with smaller balloons and over time you go larger with improved cardiac output, reduced pulmonary vascular resistance, it's amazing. You look at the angiogram three, six months, 12 months later, it's, it's a completely different vasculature. And it's a lot more forgiving in that sense, at least, compared to what you see um, on, on the coronary and then the peripheral vascular side. Do these patients require any kind of supplemental anticoagulant or antiplatelet therapy in addition to what they may already be on? So all of them uh, inevitably will be on some anticoagulant, right. whether it's warfarin, whether it's one of the novel oral anticoagulants like Xarelto or Eliquis. And there's some, unfortunately, that will fail them. So they'll ultimately be on anoxaparin. So they will remain on it. Uh, the duration obviously comes down to the discretion and, uh, and the recommendation of the pulmonary hypertension specialists. Usually it's lifelong as far as I recall. Yeah. yeah. They have to be on lifelong antiquation. Right. And to play the therapy, we're not uh, routinely using, although there may be a role for that as well. Right. But the key aspect of it is when you see that, that you're able to take them off of their pH medicines. Yeah. That's where, that's where it becomes the most rewarding, where they'll over time come down to less and less diuretics. They may come off of their riosiguat or, or other medication that they may be on. And, and that's really the only FDA approved medicine for this condition. And you see that literally somebody went from being on four or five medicines to only on one or two. And that's also, you know, a big component of why their quality of life over time improves. Okay. So in terms of follow-up for these patients, I mean, you treat them five or six times and that it, or do you do like a follow-up angiogram or is it just clinical follow-up? And then if, if symptoms recur worsen, then, you know, you go back to looking at uh, possible intervention. All of the above. Okay. All of the above. So they'll, they'll, they'll come back to clinic. They'll get reassessed. All of them will eventually get a dual energy CT. They'll get a right heart cath uh, to look at their hemodynamics. Otherwise, we'll repeat the pulmonary angiogram. And then uh, some of them will also even get a cardiopulmonary exercise stress test. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And again, like Reha said, it comes back to the, to the whole multidisciplinary team and then the pulmonary hypertension uh, leaders who are helping to, uh, you know, adjudicate what's, what's happening with the patients based on their, uh, based on their imaging findings and their symptoms. Yeah, our protocol now is to get a follow-up uh, right heart cath and pulmonary angiogram after the completion of the BPA um, in what, three months or six months, uh, Benham? As far as yeah, got, it's about six months. Six yeah. months. And uh, they get follow-up at the pulmonary hypertension clinic uh, closely uh, about every month. But there have been some patients that have not done well uh, symptomatically that we had to, you know, come back and reassess the situation and see what's going on. The good thing about this space, yeah, the good thing is sometimes we'll see in, um, that there may be a hybrid approach where they'll get surgery, which obviously has been the gold standard. But if they have residual disease that's distal, then you'll combine it with the BPA. The data is not so good the other way around for BPA within surgery, but um, in the in the patients that have a lot of central disease and a lot of residual distal disease, uh, they've shown in the registries that you can offer them both of them a little bit staggered. So surgery first, and then six to 12 months later, they can get uh, BPA, and those patients will do very well. The one thing I'll say here, and I know Reha has always mentioned it to me when we talk about these cases, is unlike other cases like you know high-risk left main interventions or high-risk other interventions that we offer sometimes, look at patients with Impella or ECMO or other support where the patients may become prohibitive. With this particular disease space, there really is no age cutoff. Okay. It really comes down to the individual patient. So, you know, Reha and I did somebody that was well into his 80s, but as a functional man and a baseline functional man um, and did very well. And, you know, we, you know, we see how he's doing now and it's so gratifying. So there's, there's real no age cutoff at the end still comes down to the whole multidisciplinary team and looking at the overall substrate in terms of quality of life and organs. But this can be offered to patients well into their eighties, uh, safely and effectively. 
Like everything else, though, we end up getting the patients who are a little older and a little sicker, um, as <laughs> opposed right. to the surgical subset. Uh, but you guys the surgery, are used to that, though. Yeah, yeah, we're used to it. But <laughs> the, the surgery is really impressive, too, though. You know, I, I scrubbed really? into one of them, and you know, patients go into a complete uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, and you know, they, they cool down the body. And then um, Dr. Tang is about an hour to do the endorectomy. He kind of goes into the, you know, the right or left pulmonary artery and then scopes up all the way to the segmental and sometimes six segmental vessel and cleans out so much junk from those pulmonary arteries. And you can see the hemodynamics pre and post, uh, there's a significant drop in the hemodynamics. Having said that, uh, we've had some patients who've had uh, endorectomy and still were, were really symptomatic predominantly from distal disease that we end up treating. Yeah. Every patient is different, but we have the skill set. We have the team um, to offer these treatments. And uh, yeah, the surgical therapy is quite jaw dropping. When you see what they do <laughs> and, and then how much time they have to do it, where they literally put them on full hyperthermic circulatory arrest and you see the patients afterwards. And Dr. Tang always sends us the pictures of the, uh, the hemodynamics intra-op. So pre and post, it's, it's really amazing how they do. And, and again, there's a whole dedicated team uh, up in the cardiovascular ICU, the surgical ICU afterwards. And these patients get really remarkable, extremely high level care. It's really extraordinary what, you know, you guys are doing as part of this multidisciplinary center. And, and you know, there, there are not a lot of people out there that are doing this. It's amazing that you guys, you know, took the initiative to go out, learn this and, and build it and apply it. Is there anything that I'm missing, you know, that's important to share aside from what you've already given us? We still have a lot to learn. We still have a lot to learn about this. <laughs> no, it's great. Space. It's a complicated disease space. You know, we'll, you know, you know, we'll have patients that have uh, mixed pulmonary hypertension. There's a CTEF component, there's a type one component, and it, inevitably there's always that, you know, what we call the group two pH patients that have a little bit of CTEF, but also some left-sided diastolic heart failure. And these are the ones where, you know, Reha and I are texting Dr. Slobin. We're like, we don't understand this. You know, what do you think? And, and obviously, you know, she's the wizard. She can pick it up pretty quickly, but then you realize how complex it is. And it's, um, it really requires a really high level of understanding of pulmonary hypertension. That's why there's so many different groups of it. Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of multidisciplinary work in everything, but this is as multidisciplinary as it gets, in my opinion. Sounds like it. Um, you know, BPA is a completely new ball game, and you know, it, the patients are so complex that it really requires close to ten people to make the appropriate decisions for these patients. Every patient is a question mark. Every patient will like, what should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? So we're continuously learning with every single patient, every single angiogram, and we're getting better and better. But uh, hopefully in the future, uh, you know, we'll be offering this to more and more patients and then we'll get better at it for the sake of our patients. But, you know, it all comes down to the team and we have a great team that I'm really happy with. Benham has yeah. been a great partner and, and we do these together. You know, almost every week, yeah, we do two, three cases and we spend two, three hours in the same room, sweating side to side. <laughs> and so, you know, he's my brother, yeah. Yeah. And I really can't thank Riha and Dr. Slobin and, and all the team members. You know, I was just looking at a, you know, this week we presented three cases and I went back to take a look and they have actually a dead, a comprehensive note where they document that the, the case was presented and they, and they list all the members of the team that were present. I didn't realize how big our team was until I saw it. There's at least. 20 people. There's obviously the medical and the surgical directors. There's the interventional people. There's a diagnostic cardiologist, a diagnostic radiologist. The APPs were extremely important. I mean, they'll see these patients pre and post. Sure. On nutrition, pharmacy. I mean, I, I mean, literally, it's like a football roster of people for each on this team. It's so big. It's been really fun and gratifying to build it up, though, from scratch. You know, we, we knew oh, nothing bet. two years ago. You know, 
I heard CTIF. I'm like, CTIF? What was it again? You know? <laughs> and now I'm like, yeah, and now we're, we're doing cases left and right. It's, it's really, really gratifying. Well, guys, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. I love hearing about this and excited to hear what you guys uh, share with us moving forward. 